This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hey, this is Allison. Just a real quick update before we get started. This was actually the first episode that Gina and I recorded, and we had some technical problems. It was my first time using the equipment in this context. Might have been some poorly monitored tapping of various objects and gesturing in a way that might have hit the microphone or the table or the microphone and the table. So it's a little noisier and a little lower quality than we'd like. It starts out a little rough and then it gets a lot better. And please bear with us for this one section. This is technically part one of what's going to be a two-part episode uh, featuring our conversation with George Rohack about publishing terminology. We decided to be extremely thorough on our rundown through the glossary that we'd created for ourselves, and our conversation went pretty long. So rather than give you a two-plus-hour talk all at once, we decided it would be better to break it into two parts so you have a little bit more time to digest. So we'll be back in two weeks with the second part of this episode. And again, my apologies, it's a little rough in places. I promise you it gets better after this. Welcome to the second episode of Graphic Novel TK, where we walk you through literally everything that we could possibly think to tell you about the process of publishing a graphic novel. This week we have George Rohack with us, but first I guess we should probably introduce ourselves. Uh, I'm Allison Wilgus. I am a cartoonist and writer, and I have a lot of opinions about comics. And with me is Gina Gagliano. I work in publishing at First Second Books. I do marketing and publicity for them. And I also work with a lot of conferences to do programming. And surprise, surprise, I have a lot of opinions as well. <laughs> um, in this episode, we're going to be talking about specific publishing terminology. Um, each industry has its own specific technology, uh, terminology, and Publishing is no exception. Um, it can be really difficult for someone who's new to the industry to get familiar with the terminology and to even understand what's going on in conversation. Yeah, half uh, the time it's like you don't actually understand how much of the conversation you're not understanding. You're just like, oh, yeah, no, sure, I know what a publisher is. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> you mean publisher the institution or publisher the person? Because these aren't the same thing, We'll get, we'll, which we'll talk about more in a minute. Yeah, so in this episode, we're basically going to go through a lot of terms with the help of our excellent guest, George and talk about what they mean, talk about different ways that we use them, and uh, hopefully try to clear up any confusion about what people mean when they're talking about all the various parts of publishing. Um, George, thank you for joining us here today. Can you tell us who you are? <laughs> who is, who's this jerk? Um, I'm George Rehack. Uh I am the manager and like founder of the Organized Havoc Syndicate. Um, I have been working, gosh, in publishing, publishing and comics adjacent stuff for 13, 14 years now since high school. Um, oh, geez. I didn't realize it had been that long. Yeah, yeah. I, I started by um, pretty much helping friends do like ash cans and minis for like local conventions and like anime shows and stuff like that um because at the time it was still like we lived in the middle of nowhere and like outside like this was before kinkos and uh you know like office depot and stuff would do like staple bound booklets or stuff so it was like finding a place we could do the things finding a place that we could get you know like the um saddle stitchers and like sit there and do that and like art written like art rooms in uh you know the school or whatever and um yeah just wound up keeping up doing that helping people do like self-publishing throughout like undergrad and um grad school and then that pretty much led to me 
getting employed at Oni Press as an operations director, uh, which I was there for several years. And then... Um, now, just briefly, like, what exactly does operations director mean? Because uh, this is, in fact, a podcast about terminology, so... So, operations director, I was kind of the... Uh, kiddingly referred to as the all-seeing eye basically anything that was going uh intra-departmental like communications um i was overseeing along with like calendaring and well it's not necessarily and usually not something that um somebody uh takes care of in that position i was also handling all of like the print buying because uh at the time um oni hired me they had just uh, lost their managing editor. Um, he left to go join the military. And um, so they had hired another just like full-time editor. And rather than put the costing duties for print buying onto him, they put it onto me. So, And you have a background in web comics as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. I have been as part of that whole, you know, doing tons of conventions during the early aughts, uh, getting to know people who were, you know, starting to do like merchandising on things like, uh, you know, Cafe Press and other stuff like that. And then helping them do like small books. It, uh, yeah, kind of cascaded into um, like a, the much larger thing that I'm like doing today, which is you know, I started helping people doing Kickstarters and crowdfunding campaigns, and then that got me involved with What Pumpkin, the Homestuck people, and I was with the, and I worked with them for a couple of years, and uh, then uh, for the past several years up until the beginning of this year, I was uh, running things over at uh, Bread Pig, um, which was a sidekick for hire and kind of like boutique publisher that Alexis Ohanian founded, um, and yeah, yeah, so. It's been a You've long, done a grand tour of comics. Yeah, it's been a long, strange trip. I mean, I, for a long time, I always kind of figured that I would do like manage, like freelance management stuff, but it was ne- something that I oddly fought against the idea of. I don't. I st- I'm still trying to unpack what that says about me personally, but it was like always something that I kept falling into, like seeing myself doing, and I was like, nope, I've got to take two steps back from this. And um, <laughs> then finally, like at the end of last year, I was just like, hi, let's just do this. So can you give us your big picture of what your job is today and then a little bit of the day-to-day of what you do for your job? Sure. So my duties entail managing creators, whole entire creative like um, enterprises. So that's everything's soup to nuts. So some people I'm setting calendars for like, Hey, here's, you know, like when you're going to work on pages, when you're going to work on scripts, um, we're going to do meetings about, you know, the conventions that you do. Let's schedule when you do like payments. Some people I'm helping like schedule personal things in their lives. Um, uh, but then it also comes down to me doing costing and merchandising for, you know, their various like books or IPs as well as planning, Uh, you know, releases in tandem with any sort of partners they have. So if they're working with publishers, if they're working with, you know, a specific merch partner, or if they've got something like a game or something in in the works, then I'm the kind of person who handles all of that, like, go-between. As well as, you know, if press contact stuff comes in and they don't have a publicist um, or, you know, like, marketing person, like, I'm the person who that lands on. Same thing goes with... um, you know, kind of management of contracts for publishing rights. If they don't have a literary agent, then that just defaults to I feel me. Like one time when you were talking to me about this, you basically were explaining it as like, you just give people more time to be actually making their comics as opposed to like answering a ton of emails and chasing down a bunch of 
like manufacturers for keychains or whatever nonsense Mm -hmm. or just, yeah. 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 Like at the end of the day, my goal is to make it so that if you're a writer, you get to just sit and write. If you're an artist, you get to just sit and draw and outside of, you know, doing a couple meetings, like, you know, once or twice a week with like me, it's, uh, you know, that's all you have to worry about doing. And then. Gosh, that sounds luxurious. (laughs) (laughs) That's the dream. So. Okay, so we're going to dive into some terminology. Uh, We have a whole long list of words. We're going to go right through them. And we've grouped them pretty generally into some categories, uh, (laughs) which are kind of uh, off the cuff. But we're going to This may be... We might have front-loaded this with the nerdiest Google Doc we're going to make for this entire podcast. We'll see. <laughs> Gina was literally going through, like, glossaries of publishing terms online to make sure we weren't forgetting anything and just sitting in my kitchen being like, Allison, do you know what this is? I'm like, I have never even heard those words before, so absolutely not. Yes, this is our idea of a fun time. No, it was really good. We were very excited. <laughs> okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about is um, publishing as a general concept. So we want to talk about the direct market versus the book trade market. Um, George, the direct market, what is this thing? Uh, the direct <laughs> market. Um, the direct market uh, is usually ref- is um, used to refer to comic stores uh, themselves. It's... Um, primarily serviced by uh, diamond distributors. Uh, Back in like the 90s and 80s, there was several other distributors. Diamond's basically it at this point. And so it's your local comic shop. And And it's a completely separate system that has nothing, no connection to the rest of book distribution as far as I know. Correct. Like they even have a separate date for um, when their titles come out. So for, you know, uh, traditional like book market, things come out on like Tuesdays, comic market, it's Wednesdays. So uh, that was one thing that got pushed through, like whenever like Diamond started its big kind of like uh, takeover as the other distributors were failing. And so, um, yeah, it's it's what you can pick pick up through the Diamond catalog. And that isn't necessarily everything comics. There's lots of um, comics, you know. Uh, publishers that are not distributed by Diamond, and thus it's a lot harder for them to get into the direct market, into bookstores. There's a lot of directly calling comic book stores and being like, would you like to carry my comic? Correct. Yeah, there's still actually a lot of that. Yeah. Um, Whereas, you know, kind of bookstores are a completely different market. There's There's still a ton, like, relatively speaking, by comparison to one, there's a ton of, uh, you know, bookstore, you know, distributors still out there. So So by book market, do you just mean like literally bookstores like a Barnes and Noble or even Amazon would also be considered part of the book market? Yeah, so the book market is also called the the book trade market or the trade market as opposed to the direct market. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are part of it. You know, bookstores, like independent bookstores, independent book distributors, major book distributors, places like Baker and Taylor and Ingram, um, and then also Barnes and Noble, Amazon, uh, Books a Million, all the the chains of books as well. I have a very specific question. So, like, if I'm buying a book at like a Walmart, is that part of the book market, or is that a whole other third thing that we're not going to get into right now? Generally, anywhere that buys books from a book publisher, any like the the Walmart and Costco and all and Sam's Club and all those places in like the are, supermarket. Yes, um, those are we refer to them as the box stores. Uh, but they're a 
place that the book market distributes. Okay, also. I thought so. So it's like so huge, and the direct it, market is so small. It literally less than two thousand stores. Yeah, and it's I crazy. Mean, there's it's, also about two thousand bookstores in the U.S. True, it's like indie bookstores. So at another eight hundred Barnes and Noble. It's not that. There's like five comic stores and 2,000 bookstores. <laughs> like they're, they're about an equal amount of bookstores and comic stores. It's just that when you talk about the book trade market, there are all these other entities that come into play as well as the independent uh, bookstore market. Every book trade publisher also distributes to Diamond. Um, it's not like if you publish a book with Random House or Scholastic or for a second that your books aren't getting into comic stores and aren't getting into Diamond. Uh, Diamond is just one of the distributors that the book trade market uses. So let's talk about publishers versus imprints then. And in so, this case, we're talking about publisher the institution. Indeed. So in the industry of publishing, <laughs> um, there's such thing as a publisher. A publisher tends to be a giant organization or a small organization. There's all sorts of big to small versions of publishers um, that has an internal operations staff, editing, design, marketing, um, you know, production operations, and they publish books. Uh, so <laughs> in the book trade industry, there's, there's the big five. Uh, which is the... I want to see if... Wait, George, can you name all five of the big five? Uh, Pop quiz. Don't put me on the spot like that. <laughs> can I name all the big five is the, the question. Well, I mean, there's Macmillan. Yes. And Penguin Random House. Yes. And wait, are there still five? Because Penguin and Random House became... Yes, there used to be the big six. And now okay. Big so five. Macmillan, Penguin, Random House. Jeez. Um, Harper. Harper. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, Simon and Schuster? Yes. And Hachette. Yes. Okay, got it. Um, and they're, yes. Sorry. So those are all publishers. And as part of them being publishers, um, they all have smaller imprints that specifically concentrate on specific kinds of books, uh, con- concentrate on specific age categories of books. So usually if you're making a deal with HarperCollins, you're doing a deal with Green Willow, their like, lovely kids imprint. Or you're not doing a deal with Macmillan, you're doing a deal with First Second. Or you're not doing a deal with Scholastic, you're doing a deal with Scholastic. Yeah, or Yen Press, you're doing it. You're not doing with uh, Hachette, you're doing it with Yen Press. And it's interesting because, like, the smaller... Yeah, so the difference between a publisher and an imprint is that the publisher is the giant corporation that usually doesn't actually publish anything, uh, but has a, like, logistical and, uh, like, functional infrastructure to make things happen. And then the publisher then has lots of little umbrella imprints, which all have their own editorial design marketing staff. And those are the people who are specifically concentrated on publishing books to a specific MO. So would you say that at a smaller, at a very small publisher, it's basically just like the publisher is also its own imprint, like, or it just, it's just... It, it, it would depend on the scale. Uh, uh, the smaller the company, the more likely, like what you just described is. But you, but there are situations where a company could have an imprint and they have like maybe one or two dedicated staff, but mm-hmm. then you know the rest are like shared. 
Um, and that would be for a case of just making the marketing to a particular like category or, you know, like audience easier, mm-hmm. because if they have, say, like their primary line is, you know, of a shirt, certain genre type, but they're starting to get into another genre type, it would just make it easier to kind of make that separation so that way whenever they're going to book buyers and things like that they could very easily just be like all right well look this is the different you know entity so would you say that the point of an imprint is almost like a like your branding kind of it's like to give somebody an idea of like if you like this kind of book this imprint is for you yeah yeah it's it's definitely like a significant way to um say this is the like you like stuff in this like curation profile, then you're going to like everything that comes from like this thing. So if you like this like flavor, whereas uh, (laughs) if you move to, you know, um, kind of a larger upscale, then it's just like, Oh God, everything is available. So. And just because you have a book deal with a smaller publisher doesn't mean that you, um, have your book available only in the direct market or not available at all or available in the book trade market. Your your small publisher will most likely have a distribution deal with a larger publisher. So that's a good thing to ask about if you're talking to publishers, like how are you going to get my book into a bookstore? Because some, if, they should be able to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So on the other end of that scale is self-publishers. Which, George, you've had a lot of experience with. Yeah, yeah. The overwhelming majority of people that I work with have a long history in self-publishing, which is basically you are responsible for putting together all of the files uh, for your book, um, uh, either hiring someone to put like make them print ready, like working with a working directly with a printer to actually print the books, like and then deliver them to usually most self-publishers are setting them out themselves so that means to like your storage unit or if you have a place with a garage or just to your apartment and live with tons and tons of boxes of books um and then are shipping them out like directly so uh like it can get more um you know kind of it can get more dynamic and you can wind up like turning it into like a full business, you know, certainly there are a few people like, you know, Jeff Smith who have done that yeah. quite, quite well. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, um, it doesn't necessarily have to turn into that enterprise if you're just looking to kind of keep it on like a smaller scale. So where do you think the transition is between being self-publishing and being a publisher? For instance, like Spike Trotman made that transition pretty recently. And do you think it has to do with like, just, are you distributing other people's books? I would, I would say, yeah. At the moment that you start to do work that is not your own and, you know, help manufacture and sell it. Like it's one thing if you just help, you know, it get printed or whatever. But if you're the person who is like, helping get the files together, helping it get printed, helping like perform the sales to people. Then I would say like, once you're selling their books through your website. Yeah. Yeah. You're selling them through your website or at a show, like, you know, or as part of like a Kickstarter, like I would say then you've, and it's like not necessarily anything that you have your own direct work in. I'd say then, yeah, you're like, you've crossed the line. I think another line there is just having an LLC. Like, if you set up yourself as a company... You can be a publisher of one, also. Yes. Yeah, kind of. That's actually a good transition to the next big distinction that we wanted to get through, which is the overall concept of work-for-hire versus creator-owned, which is, like, 
such an enormously important distinction that I feel like a lot of people literally never think about and I think about every single day. <laughs> um, yeah, like, work. so work for hire is, hey, you're going to draw, like, a licensed uh, product for whatever reason, so you're not going to own anything for it. That's like, hey, if you draw Batman, if you draw Spider-Man... Yeah, so licensed, like, how do you define licensed? Um, so it's somebody else's, uh, like, IP. So it's something like, oh, hey, Steven Universe has a comic. You're drawing, like, you know, that comic. You aren't going to get to own that comic. You aren't going to get to reprint that comic at a later point in time because somebody else owns that intellectual property. So any work that you're performing on it is work for hire. Um, whereas uh, creator-owned is... You made something, you have the right to kind of like sell it to whoever you want, give like a publishing license for it to whoever you want. Um, You have the legal capacity to do whatever you want with it. Whereas, you know, work for hire is very typically the, hey, I draw this, I get paid for a page rate and then potentially see royalty. um, If you're working with a good publisher for hire. Um, And uh, yeah. So like... What a good way of putting it, so when you're having a creator-owned book, when you're getting published, what you're basically doing is negotiating them paying you for the right to publish your book, but they don't own your book. They own the right to publish your book in English for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Or various other rights. Or various other rights, which we'll get into later. But but that's still your thing. And if you decide that you want to do another book with those same characters, unless you've done something specifically in your contract that bars you from doing it. Yeah. Typically, if, like, you're doing a creator-owned book with um, any other... uh, like publisher with a kind of like standard deal you can make your own merch for it you can make prints for it you can do whatever you can do whatever you want you can do a sequel you can do a prequel you can do you know whatever comic exactly yeah so you can do any one number of things make a zine and you know the publisher isn't has like no not recourse they just don't care practically the big the biggest division seems to be like this idea that and this is up for debate the generally work for hire pays more because you're basically like, that's all you're getting. Like you're getting paid this amount of money. And again, maybe royalties on it, which we'll get into what exactly what that means later. Uh, but like, whereas a creator on thing, sometimes you won't get paid as much, but the idea is like you're investing kind of in your own creative future. Like this book is yours and any other books that you do will build off of this book. And cool. if it goes out of print, you can take it to a different publisher and continue to, it won't get sucked down if you, unless you sign a bad contract, which is the thing we are definitely <laughs> going to talk about on this podcast. You're not going to get lost in some black hole of like, I spent years of my life on this thing and now I can't do anything with it because I don't actually own it. Yeah, correct. That's like a, that's spot on. All right. So now we're moving into publishing jobs. Yeah. So we talked about George's earlier. <laughs> uh, so we're going to start with, okay, so now what is publisher the person? You've explained this to me like five times and I still don't entirely completely get it. Okay, so depending on which publisher you, which publisher the company you sign up <laughs> with, the publisher of that company is going to be the person who runs the company. And that person can have a variety of different jobs, but generally they're responsible for making sure that the company runs and having people report to them who do various other jobs like editing and design and marketing and sales and production and operations and all that sort of thing. So at a smaller company like Boom, there will be one publisher. And at a giant company like Random House, there will be 
many, many, many different publishers. Um, usually each imprint will have its own publisher and then the company as a whole will have a publisher. So, you know, I work at First Second and there are three different people who can say that they're the publisher of First Second. I did because, not know that. Yes. Um, because we have a publisher who's generally responsible for our operations. And then he has a boss who's the publisher of our parent company, who's also responsible for our operations, but at a remove. And then he has the boss who's the publisher of all of Macmillan, who can also say he is the publisher for a second. And the parent company in this case would be Macmillan Kids? Yes. Well, so there's for a second, and then there's a, a smaller group under that where we have a publisher and then Macmillan Children's is a larger group over that and then Macmillan is uh, has a publisher. Is it like an editorial job or like a management job? Like where like what 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 are they doing on a day-to-day basis? Well it really depends person to person. Yeah. As the publisher of the company, you get to be the person in charge of the company. So you can be like I'm going to spend all of my time making a robust job workplace infrastructure for my employees who are going to make amazing graphic novels with their time. Or you can be like, I'm going to hire someone to deal with our like HR and infrastructure and I am going to spend you know, half of my time talking to my employees and making sure that they're okay and half of my time editing books or designing books or marketing books or um, I'm going to spend three quarters of my time being an industry speaker advocate and going to meetings and committees and talking around the U.S. about how amazing books and comics are. So there's a whole variety of jobs that can go into this because you're the person in charge. So you can basically decide how your time is going to be set, Um, you know, and depending on how you make the decision trees at your company, people can basically be like, okay, I have the authority to acquire the books that I want to acquire because I am the editorial director of this company. I don't need to run that by the publisher. Or you could be like, you need to run it by Literally everything by me. Yes. That's actually, all right. Yeah, there's a, 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 it's pretty common in a lot of smaller, like some really smaller publishers for um, publishers, the company, for the publisher to be like the last check uh, check mark on like stuff coming in. It's not always the case, but in the smaller companies, usually that's kind of what you'll see. So, so yeah, I would definitely recommend anybody listening to this. If you aren't 100% sure, you should ask. <laughs> it is a thing that people get confused about mm-hmm. all the time. So agent, that's another really big one. Yes. And that's kind of George's job. Yeah. You're, you're kind of, it's interesting because you're sort of like, you're sort of agent adjacent. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I don't like to, uh, like, uh, I always correct people. I'm like, I'm not, who, who introduced me is just an agent because I'm like, uh, I'm much more interested in the management stuff that I do for people because it has to me a much larger impact and quality of life. That's what I'm more interested in. Um, but, uh, yeah. So an agent, um, will essentially work with you to develop, um, pitch to develop pitches or your, or just represent a work that you've already completed and take that around to, you know, various publishers that um, it has either been slightly tailored for or that they feel it has, like, uh, like opportunity with. And everybody has a different style. Um, some people take stuff out for, like, tons of bidding. Other people, like, you know, kind of just, like, target, sit down with people and workshop things through. But they pretty much, like, negotiate the deal for, like, your work. And um, 
that includes, you know, like money, like different rights, things like that. They make sure that, you know, you're being taken care of. And they'll also be the one that goes to bat for you, like if a publisher isn't making payments or other things like that. A lot of contracts involve things about your right to audit your publisher. And usually Mm -hmm. it's your agent who would do that. But they're like, okay, look. I'm looking at these numbers and something looks wrong here. Yeah. Let's sit down and go through this. Yeah. And um, so you have a contract with your agent. Mm-hmm. You have a contract with them specifically to represent you. Which is completely way. separate from like a book contract. This yeah. is a completely Correct. different just yeah. with your agent, regardless of the book that they're representing. So that, that is a legal relationship. But as well as that, um, we feel like it's really important for authors to have personal relationships with their agents or if they have a manager with their manager. Because this is the person who's literally going out there, being the face of your work to publishers, and you want to make sure you like them and that you trust them to represent you well and that you like feel like you are comfortable going to them and saying, I don't, I don't know about this term, I'm worried about something, explain things to me, because they are like basically your first line of like defense slash mediation with your publisher. If you are concerned that your editor is not getting back to you, if you see the cover direction of your book and you're like, what has happened with this? I don't mm-hmm. like it at all and I wish things to be changed. Um, talking to your agent as a first step can be really helpful because they are the people who are like, yeah, I talk to your editor 50 times a week because I have 50 different <laughs> clients with them. Or, you know, I've known your editor for 10 years because I've been selling books to them for that long let me see if I can figure out what they're thinking. So of course that's a conversation you can have yourself and you don't need an agent to get a book deal, especially in the comics industry. Yeah. But if you are a person who is anxious about that relationship with your publisher and wants help to navigate it, your agent is that person who will do that. It's just literally their job to keep track of stuff. that's easy to not keep track of. Like, you know, you you turned in your final manuscript. Did you get paid for that? Like, did you get your royalty statement? Like, (laughs) Did they actually send you back your copy of your contract? And it's like, they'll, they have a giant spreadsheet. Their entire job is keeping track of this stuff. Yeah. And, and, and like Gina said, like they, they, are, they are your primary advocate and they are your uh, number one defender. So like they are going to also be the, they are going to be your bad guy um, whenever you need someone in the room. If, you know like worst case scenario things happen they're going to be the ones to be like knocking on doors and like you know hassling people for for like breaches which in the smaller the industry goes um unfortunately like you know the more people are prone to use like emotional and personal manipulation so having somebody you know who doesn't care who can shut that off and be like no we may have done business but you are like raking this person over the coals or you aren't treating them right so i'm going to you know come at you with everything that i have legally like at my at my disposal uh is kind of good um especially even if you're not necessarily like you can have a really good relationship with your editor but maybe you're having a problem yes and you don't want to mess with your relationship with your editor correct like 
it's nice to have an agent who can have that shitty conversation with your editor so yeah. that you don't have to. Yeah. And, and the other <laughs> for thing, both people, for your editor also. Yeah. And, and the other thing I just wanted to mention is typically, typically the way an agent will kind of work is you will like sign an agreement with, as Gina said, you'll sign an agreement with an agent to represent like your body of work or for a period of time. And um, they will then usually be the ones receiving the money first from the publisher. So that's, that's part of that whole check and balance like because they'll take their they they'll take their like commission and fee out of like all the payments that they make um and that's usually like a percentage scale yeah, yeah like so, it's anywhere from like you know 10 to 20 percent like the like pretty kind of like standard um but yeah they'll take their money out of that and then pass it on to you and so that's the standard arrangement for yeah. like that kind and of we will have an entire agent episode where we were getting into this in more detail but like Generally speaking, I feel like we've kind of covered... Yeah, we're basically going to have an entire episode to talk about all of these jobs that we're <laughs> yeah, going to Yeah, this is about. kind of an overview. Yeah. Speaking of which, acquiring editor. Yes. So, generally, an editor at a publisher is a person who buys books and then um, gets them into a shape where they are going to be published. Um, they're kind of a like, point person and project manager and also creative partner for authors. Um, at different publishers, this ranges from, you know, I acquired this, this book and now I'm going to send it to our designer, or it ranges from, I acquired this book and now we're going to spend three years having, you know, bi-weekly conversations about your plot structure and your art direction and all of this and do like line edits, do copy edits, all of that. And, um, like really be a source of advice and help in the creative process. Um, some publishers have editors who, do that whole creative process advice and then acquiring editors who just buy things and then pass things over to their editorial staff. Um, but if you sell a book to a publisher, generally it's your editor who's going to be your main point. Person. Especially in comics. Yes. <laughs> All right. Packager. Yes. This one I kind of know. <laughs> Packagers are a weird book industry thing that we don't talk about a whole amount. Um, but Sometimes when uh, a book publisher is looking to publish something, they will work with an agent and a creator, and sometimes they'll work with a packager. A packager is a company who comes to a book publisher and says, so I hear that you're looking at doing a series of picture book comics. We will organize the whole thing for you, and you just have to publish them. So they generally find the authors, edit the books, design the books, and the publisher gets to sign off on everything and say, like, oh, no, this is not a good cover direction or, like, you know, this particular subject is not one we want in our picture book graphic novel line. Um, but the packager will kind of just put the whole thing together. Um, this happens a lot with licensed properties, like, um, like licensed property early readers, where the people will just come in and be like, I have done all the work on this, and, you know, here you go, HarperCollins will now be publishing these superhero early readers. Um, So they have a whole team put together internally that is kind of working on all these books. Yeah. And they're just, okay, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, But there are packagers who do stuff that seems a lot like original creator-owned work, and um, usually look at the copyright page, and it says, like, you know, copyright alloy entertainment or something like that and that's how you know that the book isn't a creator-owned book it just 
looks like one. I've had some friends work on those. They're weird. Yeah. They pay really well, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, generally, what a packager is trying to do is publishing something that's really commercial. Yeah. Um, so that's why they, they pay really well. They yeah. try to basically kind of like put together the ultimate dream book package. Uh-huh. A lot of the books that you buy at the checkout counter at a Barnes & Noble were done by packagers. Like, I had a friend who did one that was basically, like, a Christmas book about pets. <laughs> made to order. And there was, like, a dog's one and there was a cat's one. Yep. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with that. They're cute books. Nope. Yeah. They did a great job. Yeah. No. They do not own those books. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, copy editor. Kind of jumping yeah. all over the place so here. So we talked about editors. And copy editors do something that's different from the whole editorial point person and creative vision sort of job. Copy editors are specifically involved to say, did you spell things correctly? Did you use grammar correctly? Did you have visual consistency throughout the book? Like if your character is wearing a blue shirt on page five and it's still the same scene 50 pages later and now they're wearing a green shirt, that's probably a problem. Um, So basically what they do is they go through the book and they're like, let me call out all the things that I think might be a problem Let me put together a consistency guide to say, you know, this is how we're using the word. Uh, Sorry, I'm thinking about Czech plays and Southern accents. So it's like, (laughs) you know, like... No, y'all is a perfect example because there's two different colloquial ways to do that. So a copy editor would go through and there's... Because there's Y apostrophe A-L-L and there's Y-A apostrophe L-L. They come from different parts of the country. And so... That would be a perfect example. Like a copy editor would go through and be like, oh, wait, we had one Y apostrophe A-L-L and then, but like all the others are Y-A apostrophe. And often, like I know in series, often like the copy editor or the editor or even sometimes the author will put together like a style guide basically where it's like, did I, am I always spelling this, you know, alien's name the exact same way and putting all these apostrophes in the Mm -hmm. same place? Like, so that they don't have to be constantly asking you, uh, did you mean for this word to have 10 apostrophes in it? Because the answer is yes, and it's in the style guide. Yeah, so the copy editor is going to call out all these changes, and then um, usually what happens is that the editor looks at them, and the author looks at them, and they say, these are ones I did on purpose, and these are ones I did not do on purpose, and we're going to fix the ones that we didn't do on purpose and keep the rest. It seems like a big problem... A lot of people end up getting mad about copy editing because I think there's a misunderstanding where it's like the copy editor's job is to point out literally everything that could be a problem. Yeah. So they're not nitpicking. Like they're not trying to be a, well, they are, but not to be a jerk or to imply that you don't know what you're doing. It's literally like they're flagging stuff to be like, on purpose? Yeah. (laughs) On purpose? Yeah. On purpose? And then like, and the answer can always be yes. Like you could, you could get... 90 copy edits and only have five of them be a thing that you're actually changing if you, depending on the book, it's just that they just want to make absolutely sure that you did it on purpose. You know, They don't want you to pick up your published book at a bookstore and be like, I can't believe there's nine apostrophes in this instead of ten. This is a horrible disaster. Uh, so the next job down the chain is productions, which is a lot like what George was talking about when he was talking about his job at Oni in operations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like Production um, is typically going to be the actual, like, putting together of, like, files and things like that for the, like, for the printer you're working with. 
different printers have different requirements, different ink densities. It is a rabbit hole that is super crazy. We are definitely having an entire production episode. Yay! <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so like there, because there's... Uh, it's usually a department, not like a... Sometimes it's a single person. Yeah, because t- typically a lot of people lump like designer and um, designer and production pre-press together, and they are wildly different jobs. I know plenty of designers that could not do pre-press at all um and plenty of pre-press people that have no idea about design briefly while you're saying it what does pre-press mean so pre-press is the actual getting the files ready for the printer to actually print the pages design is you know like doing a sweet logo or like lettering or like you know or making sure that um you know like everything's colored properly like you know yeah, assembling the book the, the mech for the book and in design and doing the cover design and the spine mm-hmm. and the flaps like that's all design but then there's a whole nother part that has to do with like getting the pricing at the at printer figuring out what the page count is like mm-hmm. figuring out like one of my favorite production parts if we're using this paper stock how thick is the spine yeah <laughs> yeah so, All that, that's a whole different job. Because if you yeah. don't have a production person, you do what I did when I kickstarted my book, which was to literally go and look through all the books that you own and find books that are a similar length and measure the spine. <laughs> no. It worked. It was fun. <laughs> I'm glad it worked out. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm, I think I measured like five of them and like averaged it. <laughs> even within, even if you work with like the same printer over years, like paper mill stocks change. So yeah. there's a, so there's sometimes always like a crazy variance. I'm like, that's the type of stuff that yeah. like that person who's handling like the actual, like physical, physical end of it uh, will kind of be taking account. And usually the, per- the person doing design and pre- pre-press and, like, the physical, like, aspect are all synced together because that is, you know, one affects the other, you know, like, a full-color, like, image being printed on a toothy stock um, looks way different than per- than printed on a gloss stock or a matte stock. And so you need to know that whenever the pre-press, whenever the designer is doing the design and the pre-press person is doing, like, the file prepping, so... All of it gets tangled together. Right. Production people are also very involved in dates, just figuring out, you know, if we send this to the book printer. time at the printer, right? Yeah, so they'll book time at the printer. They'll figure out if we send this book to the printer in May and the printer's in China, that means we'll get the final book in August, which means that we'll be able to put it on sale in September. So, you know, like they'll they'll do the work back schedule to say we need this book on sale for SPX. So. Which leads very well into the next thing we were going to talk about, which is marketing publicity. Yes. Which is Gina's job. Indeed, that is my day job. And marketing and publicity basically involves all the things that uh, a publisher does working with an author to get real humans and also people in the industry who don't work at your publisher excited about the book. So <laughs> real humans to distinguish from cartoonists. <laughs> real humans and other other people who professionally the, the are. The vast majority about of the books. people who will actually buy your book as opposed to your nerd friends who all follow you on Twitter anyway. Um, so that involves um, a lot of working with the author to talk to them about what they are doing and what they're interested in doing, but then also um, advertising, promotional materials, uh, working with teachers and librarians, working with booksellers, working with everyone inside the publishing house, um, working with a sales team, and um, also doing media events, social media, all of that. 
organizing panels. Yeah, I did a lot of organizing panels. Uh, basically, everything that is facing the public and also facing the the people who are buying the books to show them to the public. Now, I'm trying to remember. I feel like you, your work ends up involving some of this. I, so, some in terms of the, you know, like kind of paneling and, you know, I set schedules and kind of plot stuff out so that people aren't shooting them shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, with regards to like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be launching a product during, you know, like these weeks where your entire audience is going to go away and making sure that, you know, campaigns like crowdfunding and things like that are scheduled around times where people are going to be at computers to actually get on there. So crowdfunding is so interesting because it's kind of like that whole thing is like so much is baked into that. Like you're basically kind of publicizing your book before it's printed because that's part of like attracting yeah. people yeah it's an interesting yeah it's uh it's it's interesting but it's one of those things where like I, and i've seen this like time and time again for like uh different titles is that but even though even if you reach out to similar uh press people um that it'll still get covered differently like based on if you do like a crowdfunding campaign and then several months to like you know years or two later like oh hey now it's being published like by like uh you know Somebody else, you're not, you're no longer the self-publisher of it. No, it's just a huge, it's yeah. a huge job. <laughs> yeah. So then the next few jobs that we're going to talk about are all jobs where the marketing publicity person is basically responsible for interacting with these people, getting them on board with the book and making sure that they get excited. Um, so the first one of them is distributor. Which we talked about a little bit. Yes. They're basically a giant company who is responsible for a network of bookstores or libraries or schools um, and they are like bookstores and libraries and schools we are a warehouse and also a like an advice committee right so it's like a combination of like warehouse and advice column where they have a lot of books and they will send them to you if you order them and they also say these books are going to be super awesome. And so we want to make sure that you, the bookstores or schools or libraries that work with us, know that, um, you know, Svetlana Trakova's Awkward is super amazing and we're selling so much of it and we think that you should be really featuring it. So do you feel like a good distributor is also kind of a matchmaker between mm-hmm. like their, like who they're distributing the books to in their own catalog? Uh, so there's, there's independent distributors and there's giant distributors. So there's, there's really large distributors like Baker and Taylor or Ingram who are basically just like, we distribute every single book that exists. And as a publisher, um, you know, Macmillan or Scholastic or Random House or Diamond even will get their books to these distributors. So as well as your publisher distributing your books directly, they also work with these distributors to make sure that they have books. So if you're getting your books at Baker and Taylor, they'll basically have books from all of the places. Um, and we are, gonna, we are also going to have a whole episode yeah, just about distributors, so I don't want to get too far down yes. this. But. Um, and then there's smaller distributors who are specific and ha- are like, we are a distributor for Indie Press, or we're a distributor for comics like Diamond, or we're a distributor who works with like women's fiction or poetry or like has a specific like political activism or cookbook sort of event. Um, so those places are more like, this is the cookbook place. Um, now I want the politically active cookbooks though. <laughs> yes. There, there are some, there are definitely. Yeah. Some that's books. actually definitely a thing that exists. Um, probably not a whole distributor for them though, but no, distributor I don't... will also have like a magazine a newsletter, all that, that they send out to the, the, stores and libraries and schools they work with and say, you know, here are key titles, but you can really order anything. But like, let's just show you 
what we're thinking of featuring and what trends we're seeing and all that. Okay, wholesaler. This one I really, like, I think that I know, but I think that I don't actually know. Yes. So um, basically a wholesaler, as opposed to a distributor or a chain bookstore, is someone who is working directly with the publisher to take the books and turn them around themselves, Um, but on a large scale rather than, you know, like the green light bookstore calling Macmillan and saying, I want five books. It's a a large large entity that would then negotiate a special set of terms with the publisher because they might be like, I'd like 10,000 books, at which point the publisher would be like, that drops our per cost down, per unit cost down to X dollars instead of Y dollars. So um, they'll get like a, a special deal. Briefly, what is the difference between a wholesaler and a distributor? A distributor distributes books to other people, and a wholesaler is a single entity that only takes books for themselves. Okay. Thank you. All right. Chain bookstore versus indie bookstore. We kind of covered this a little bit. Yeah. Um, A chain is something like Barnes & Noble or Books A Million, where it is a centralized hub that has many smaller bookstores around the United States. Uh, An independent bookstore is a bookstore that is owned by itself and doesn't have a larger corporate master. So like, uh, and this is a kind of a colloquial versus like industry distinction. So like, for instance, like there used to, there used to be more than one Shakespeare and company. And that was like a quote unquote chain, but there was not a chain bookstore. Like that just happened to be a bookstore that had more than one location. Yeah. Just not the same thing. It's like a this chain bookstore in this case very specifically means like a, 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 like a corporate large company that has like a central office that is managing a lot of independent locations and not just some yeah. people who got successful enough that they own more than one location <laughs> for their mom and pop bookstore. Yes. Uh, And then just to round out this um, set of publishing jobs, I just want to mention librarians and teachers because librarians and teachers are awesome. Um, Probably you can figure out what they are because you (laughs) may have gone to a library or a school in your life. Hopefully. Um, But librarians and teachers are awesome and they're a major part of the publishing industry. And um, also they buy lots of books. We don't generally think of teachers and librarians as like sales avenues uh, if you're an author. But... um, they, they do buy lots of books. They have classroom libraries. They have libraries in their town and libraries in their school. And every week, every month, they are buying new books for yeah. them. And my, my sister is an eighth grade teacher. And a thing that a lot of people don't know is if there are books in a classroom, that person probably bought it themselves and own all those books. So teachers, it isn't just like, oh, they're, they're getting their school library to buy those books. No, they are literally buying those books for their own classroom. Yeah. Which is horrible, but yeah, to- totally true. Okay. All right. Now we're going to move to a new section of terminology. And I think um, we're going to start kind of getting a little bit more, oh God, we're going to have to get a little bit more rapid fire with some of these things. We're going to be here for three hours. Uh, but we're going to very briefly talk about formats and different uh, ways that people use to divide up uh, formats of books as in physical formats. Yeah, so um, we've got issues, trades, graphic novels, paperback versus uh, mass market versus hardcover. So um, talking comics, issues, the other um, term that you'll often see associated with them is floppies. Or pamphlets. Pamphlets. Pamphlets is old school. Mini comics are kind of in a similar style. Yeah, yeah. Typically that's meant to refer to a physical object that is saddle stitched. So saddle stitched means staple bound. Um, Not uh, confusing at all. Yeah, no. (laughs) Um, 
then trades are the collect are is a book that's a collection of issues. So you know whenever you would go buy like a Batman or Superman or Spider-Man trade, like that's like a collection of normally four to six issues of a comic uh, uh, of that series. Then graphic novels are like book size, uh, typically that trade length or longer um, that were released as is. So they didn't come out as floppies or issues. They weren't released in like a smaller, like serialized format beforehand. They came out as like that format. Although confusingly, webcomics often end up being put into graphic novels. Graphic novels is becoming a term that is applied very generally to anything that's comics that has a spine. So you'll go into bookstores and be like, this is the graphic novel section. And it's like half Marvel trades. Yes, (laughs) and it has collected webcomics and all of that sort of thing. So it it specifically means original graphic novel, Mm -hmm. original to this, this particular book, and also a general umbrella term. Any sort of comics that are available in the bookstore with it, it's fine. Yeah. Did you want to take care of the paperback versus yeah. mass market? Yeah, that one I... Paperback so, versus mass market, I always have a little trouble so with. So there's... When you look at a book, um, <laughs> you will see that it is either hardcover or paperback. You can tell if it's hardcover or paperback because uh, if the cover will bend, it will be a paperback book. And if it is a cardboard cover that doesn't bend, it will be a hardcover book. Uh, but there's a few different kinds of paperback books. Um, and this is the division between like trade paperback and deluxe trade paperback and mass market is something that generally came out of the science fiction industry and the mystery industry where um, they would publish a hardcover book first and then come out later with a, a smaller, physically smaller edition that is uh, basically what's called a mass market edition where has a cover, it's a paperback, it has an insides, it doesn't have flaps, it doesn't have kind of like a deluxe treatment. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing that kind of really defines like mass market is typically it is the most bottom barrel level of like stocks and like quality in terms of like the the cover like weight is normally very as low as possible um and like the paper stock itself is normally as low as like possible yeah. with it like still being readable if you picture in your mind the kind of book that you would buy in like a spinner rack in your local grocery store and then read at the beach that is a mass market paperback. Yes, though, interestingly, mass markets are being kind of phased out of the industry with the rise in people finding value in the physical object of books. So, um, because now the people who would be reading those are reading on their Kindle instead. Yeah. So people are like, I would like to buy a physical book and I'd like it to look nice. So there's a lot more trade paperbacks or deluxe trade paperbacks mm-hmm. that have flaps and all sorts of other accoutrements. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you're still seeing the uh, hardcover ver- hardcover come out from those traditional publishers as well. Though increasingly, like, the thing I see is they'll do the hardcover and softcover at the same time. And just it's all the same innards and everything. They're just like, well, some people want softcover. Some people want hardcover. So here's two different price points for you. <laughs> and we, George, you and I had talked yesterday about the difference between jacketed hardcovers and POB hardcovers. Mm-hmm. Um, jacketed hardcovers obviously have a removable jacket and POB is short for paper overboard hardcovers, which is just, um, the, that cover image that you would find on the jacket is pasted directly to the cardboard boards of the cover so that there's not that like, uh, like papery piece to pull off. I mm-hmm. like 
that much better. The, I just take those dust jackets off immediately, and then they get destroyed. <laughs> All right. Uh, so now we're going to get into uh, target, target the basically the basic concept of target audience, which is extremely important. And again, we'll get into this more later when you're pitching your book. Yes. What that means, and the, I guess basically it's like who's who do you think is going to read this book? Indeed. Yeah. And when you are thinking about a publisher for your book. Um, not necessarily about making your book, but when you're thinking about a publisher, it's often very useful to be thinking about, is this a book for four-year-olds? Or <laughs> is this a book for genre science fiction fantasy readers? Or is this a graphic novel, romance novel? Or is this a book for teenagers? Uh, because there's different imprints within publishers that deal with those specific age or audience categories. So when you're publishing your book and you're like, okay, I need to find a publisher for this book. I think I'll go with Tor Books, the science fiction fantasy publisher. Maybe your graphic novel for four-year-olds is not the best fit with them. Uh, so you just want to be thinking about that. And then also within the, the children's book context, um, when you're making comics for kids. Oh, God, there's so many subdivisions. There's within lots children's of subdivisions, books. which we're now going to talk about. But it's it's a good thing to kind of think about kids and maybe like go read some kids books at your local library because teenagers and four year olds and even teenagers and like eight and ten year olds are a pretty different audience. You know, like. Holden Caulfield at the Babysitter's Club, like those, those aren't the same readers. Briefly, before we get into kids' books, though, George, I wanted to ask you, like, is this a thing that you spend a lot of time talking about when, like, you're managing somebody who's, for instance, setting up a Kickstarter and, like, what kind of rewards you're going to do? Like, is, like, the target audience, like, a big part of that conversation? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It comes into, you know, I do a lot of research for, like, with the people I'm working with on, you know, kind of who their fan base is. And, you know, kind of, like, I look at if, you know, they're generating fan merch themselves already or they're talking about different things, you know, kind of, like, what they're after. Um, but certainly if it's something where it's, like, a sight unseen thing yet, where, like, that fan merch and type of something haven't started to percolate that you know we look at kind of the types of reader that are already in the comic because again most of the time that i'm running these campaigns with people it's there's work already out there so i can tag people like sharks um and be like all right what are you into you're and a like, 35 year old computer programmer yes. you want something to put on your desk yeah exactly <laughs> or, or you know you you're like you know probably going to be into phone accessories and things like that so yeah that's definitely something that it goes into evaluation and you should do before just being like, I guess I'll do a shirt. Yeah. And <laughs> if you're making an original graphic novel, you should definitely, you know, be true to your personal vision. Like you should make the book that you want to make. And that's really important. It's just when you're thinking about who you want to be your publisher, um, target audience is an important thing to think about at that point. Cause you don't want to waste your own time of nothing else. Like if yes. you don't spend a bunch of time pitching to people who just don't, don't do the kind of, yeah, you sell books to the person you think is going to read it. And if you have a specific creative vision of a target audience, if you are like, my ideal reader is my 10-year-old self and my 10-year-old self's friends and all of them around America, like, if you then write Game of Thrones, there may be a problem there. So that's just something you have to really think about when you're going into this. Oh, man. Okay. Let's get into the age categories. 
we could do this infinitely. And also yes. they change. <laughs> people like to act like this is some kind of like, this is or, just how it is. But some of the, some of these in here, I don't even know if people use it anymore. Nope, like, do we still use new adult? Is that still a thing? Kind of, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So anyway. So the youngest books are actually board books. Like they're the ones that come from pretty. They're like five pages long and they're made of cardboard and like they go in the bath and to be you can eat them basically. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one age of books. So those, those are kind of given to kids when they are very tiny and maybe can't like move yet. Um, <laughs> picture books are the, the next oldest category of books. Um, generally they're for, you know, three to five to seven year olds. Um, like three to five, I think, is a, a good target audience for picture books. And these are jacketed hardcover books. Um, you know, you'll recognize picture books from things like Make Way for Ducklings, like basically the things that you read when you're a tiny person, like Dr. Seuss, like that's a picture book. Um, and those are generally aimed at the very youngest readers. Um, then right. we've got early readers, which are a whole very specific thing. Um, in comics, Toon Books is the person who publishes early readers. And this is for kids that are like basically just learning to read themselves. Yeah. So like Little Bear, George and Martha, Amelia Bedelia. These books have very specific age grading on them, like the vocabulary you can use, the amount of sentences per page, the amount of creative actions per page is very specific. Um, so this is a format that you can't, unless you're very talented, accidentally make. It's something that you're like, if you are like, I would like to make early reader comics for five-year-olds to get people reading, it requires some industry research on what you're doing. Uh-huh. As opposed to young readers. Yes, which is the next stage up from that. God, which these is, are just so arbitrary the way they're... <laughs> yep. um, Which is between that very specific leveled reader of like one action per page, no words longer than two syllables, and chapter books, um, where it's a, a book like Sarah Barron's Odd Duck or Hippopotamus, where it's very simply paneled and laid out, but people aren't being quite so arbitrary with their um, like their word count and their action count. And then chapter books are like, it's like Mrs. Piggy Wiggle, that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm super dating myself right now. Yeah, chapter books are kind of an intermediate category between the books for these youngest readers and like middle grade or middle school books. Is there a comics equivalent for chapter books? Um, there there are. Chapter book series are, are kind of a tough thing in the market. There's a lot of like classic chapter book uh, books and that's what really sells. Um, so, I mean, I think kids' comics are really an exploding market. Maybe people will start making chapter book kids' comics soon. Uh, but this is basically for, you know, people who are, you know, like eight years old, just starting to read multi-page words for the Because in comics, we mostly talk about middle grade. Yeah. It's more like the age category that we talk about. That's like Indeed. 8 to 12, right? Yep. Um, and so... Sometimes it will go up from to you know ten to fourteen. It's also a middle grade category. Yeah, so like so the sci- of... like so the science comic that the, the flying machine science comic that I did recently. That's very solidly at least supposed yeah. to be a middle grade. Indeed. Book. So like seven to fourteen is kind of that range. Oh my of, god, that's like, enormous. I know it's an enormous range, and it's an enormous range of like very different ages of uh, academia, like uh, ages of vocabulary, all that stuff. And I had no idea that it was are, that big. I, th- I just thought it was very solidly 8 to 12. I didn't realize yeah. it got, went that far in either direction. And 7 to 14 is um, actual ages and not grades of school yes, yeah, that yeah, we're yeah. talking about. 
Um, so it's, but it's basically the, the middle school age, like books like El Defo, books like uh, Victoria Jameson's Roller Girl, the, the science comic series that you do. Those are middle grade. Would you say novels. that Cucumber Quest is a middle grade book? Yeah. Okay. I'm really excited mm-hmm. about that. Indeed. Me too. And then the next category up from that is Young Adult. And that George, is... do you do any YA books at this point? Um, I feel like you most the books for grown-ups. Uh, oh, no. Check, please. No. Cause... Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. A, a number of the people that I work with, their stuff has, like, fallen into YA. Like, they didn't, they didn't go out to do a YA thing, but, like... But a lot uh, of teens but, are reading their books. Yeah, so, like, L- L- Lucky Penny from uh, uh, Yuka Oda and Anath Hirsch, like, that got, um, like, a Junior Library Guild Award. That that that, that 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 was, a, that was like, uh, Yelsenomed. Um, and so, yeah, it, it got, like, a lot of, like, YA, like, traction. And then their, the collection of their all their autobio comics um, uh, that just came out this year, Our Cats Are More Famous Than Us, got, like, a bunch of, like, traction within the YA market as well. But, like, again, they started making that on their own um no intention no idea did like that they started that before they even knew any industry terms really so that was definitely something that just kind of by happenstance it fell into that category and george you've introduced two exciting new terms into this discussion um junior library guild is a library collection service that provides new upcoming books to libraries that don't have a buyer on staff and YALSA is the Young Adult Library Services Association of the American Library Association. So it's the national librarian organization that does advocacy and awards and all that sort of thing. Yeah, they're great. Super exciting upcoming category in comics. When I was a youth, there was not a YA section in my library. I keep forgetting that YA and middle grade are actually really recent. Yeah, so it, it's a pretty recent category that had its inception in books like Twilight, um, but you know, classic books like The Catcher in the Rye and The Outsiders in like the 50s and the 60s really started off this category. But it's basically the result of teenagers existing and the <laughs> book industry realizing that being 15 or 16 or 17 was super different from being 10, and the kinds of decisions you're making about your life are different. And so there's a whole separate section of books now in basically every bookstore and library in the country, specifically for teenagers. Um, and comics are really coming up on that too with amazing books like This One Summer and um, Friends with Boys and Anya's Ghost and lots of other stuff that's not published by First Second, like Hopeless Savages and um, Lost at Sea and all sorts of other things. Okay, so new adult, your favorite. I love new adult, but it's like a really rough category. I don't. I keep hoping it's gonna like get yeah. traction because so the idea of new adult is that there are these these teenagers and they're great, and then adults are kind of the uh, ultimate stage after that. <laughs> You the know, final four. The, final, yeah. the, <laughs> the last evolution. But often between the time you're a teenager and the time you're an adult, you have specific experiences being in college and just being out of college um, that are particular to that age category. Yeah. Um, and sometimes these are things that conservative schools, libraries, communities don't find to be appropriate to give to teenagers. Yeah. So there's a lot. It's basically like a lot of new adult books that I've read are basically either like it would be an adult book except that these problems are problems that a lot of adult readers have no patience for or it would be a YA book but there is sex in it yes <laughs> which is and I feel like it's particularly important for comics because it's 
it's much harder to get away with stuff in a visual medium than you can get away with in a book. Like, you can get away with, like, sex and violence in a YA book in a way that you absolutely cannot with a graphic novel because, like, there was a picture on that, like, it is literally graphic in a way that it isn't in a prose book. And it's, I feel like for new adult is a particularly important category for comics for that reason because it's, like, you can't elbow stuff into YA comics the way you can with YA prose books in yeah. quite the same way. So, and some of my favorite books that First Second have put out have been a new adult. And well, I thank you for that work. Yeah, it's really um, good. Uh, so the general barometer of is this book new adult is are the characters in college um, or just got out of college? Um, though it's it's really less popular of an age category than all the other age categories mm-hmm. so those public books can just kind of be published into adult instead of new adult yeah. if you so desire but another good book to recommend in that category I think is E.K. Weaver's The Not oh. Epic Adventures of T.J. Yeah, Animal. The Less Than Epic Adventures of T.J. Animal would definitely be a new adult book and yes. it's great and then the next age category is adult um, Which is like- and probably all of you who are listening are adults and so you kind of understand what yeah. adults are um, and that's where we really get into genre. Yeah, which so is... within the adults category, you have things like cookbooks and classics and uh, mystery and science fiction and fantasy and nonfiction and memoir and all this sort of thing uh, that are broken out within that umbrella. But, and again, you know, that's another category where like knowing what your genre is is really mm-hmm. important because Tor Books, a science fiction publisher, is probably not going to put out your cute contemplative book about getting divorced in Connecticut like that's not really their thing like you Unless might want to an alien yeah if you're getting divorced from an alien oh god I would so read that <laughs> a quiet book about getting divorced from an alien in Connecticut I would absolutely yeah. read that but, you know Robin Haas cook Korean was published by Ten Speed Press and that's a comic book about Korean cooking that is published by a basically a cooking imprint yeah, which you know wouldn't be publishing your book about getting divorced from an alien in Connecticut. Yes, exactly. It's it's. I feel like it's it's important for nerds to remember that like genre doesn't just mean science fiction and fantasy. It also means like literary fiction, like every, like everything politics, politics, like everything yeah. is a genre. Like we, because we use genre fiction as like a shorthand for nerd stuff basically but like if you're actually talking about publishing like literally every book has to go into a genre like, everything has a genre indeed so that's it for part one of our conversation with george we'll be back in two weeks with part two wherein we tried very hard to do a quote-unquote speed round and failed entirely see you then Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at graphic novel TK or email us at graphicnoveltk@gmail.com. at gmail.com.